in the spoken word uh, video uh, with the ash and the flame and the glowing embers, there was a line at the beginning that simply said that ashes are charred reminders of what once was, but are no more. When we think about life and we think about ashes in particular, they're usually either symbolic. Uh, if not, they uh, truly indicate that something has come to its end. Uh, I know some of you enjoy a good fire on uh, your back deck or patio or maybe at a campground. And that fire that once welcomed friends and once welcomed family and incredible conversations occurred around the dancing flames... You can look at that fire the next morning and you can see now ashes, these charred reminders of what once was, but is no longer. I think about what we see on the news when these wildfires uh, wreak havoc in Florida or the West. I saw new wildfires in New Mexico this week. Again, uh, the ashes that are left in the wake of those fires are reminders of what once was, but now is no longer. I think about those of you that have had a loved one or maybe even yourself experienced a, a home that has been destroyed by fire. You find yourself moving through and kicking through the debris and the ash, these reminders of what once was. And you can go to the room of where a child once was and you can remember the memories in there. The child may be safe with you now, but there are these reminders in the ash of what once was. And even for some of us, um, our loved ones uh, are cremated and their ashes set in an urn on a mantle in our homes or maybe it's the, the remains of a beloved pet and they're reminders of what once was. We experience ash in other way in our lives. There are charred reminders, although maybe not physical ash, there are charred reminders of what once was. I look around the room and I see people from multiple generations and anyone older than probably seven or eight years old uh, knows about the charred reminders of dreams, dreams that have now died, dreams that you once had and you wanted to achieve something or be someone or be with someone and, and now you have some reminders of what once was. I'm guessing that many of us in the room have experiences that we wanted to have, or we had expectations, maybe for a relationship or for a career, and now it seems to lie in ruins and in ash. Just a reminder of what once was, and probably many of us can speak to relationships that we've had that were ruined, that were consumed, uh, that were destroyed. Maybe by the flames of abuse, maybe by the flames of addiction, maybe by the flames of adultery, and all we have is ash. And as we look at those charred reminders of what once was, if we're honest, there's something in us that longs that maybe that's not the end of the story. That there's hope, that there's something more. Uh, there, there's this something in us that longs to see new life rise from the ashes. This is a longing that's not new to you. It's not new to me. It's been a part of the human experience uh, since uh, humankind came to be, this longing for something more. Uh, the ancients would capture this longing. Uh, they, they would craft these myths and these legends. Uh, the first to do it were the Egyptians. They had this, this ancient myth of a creature known as the phoenix. Phoenix. 
that, that, that would live. And in, in Egyptian mythology, the phoenix would live for upwards of 500 years. At the end of that bird's life, it would come to a nest and it would engulf itself in flames, rendered to ash only to rise again from the ashes. It was a way for them to speak to this longing in their hearts for renewal and rebirth and restoration and resurrection. But it wasn't just the Egyptians. Years later, the Greeks said, hey, we kind of like that legend of the phoenix. We're gonna, we're gonna do that too, but we're gonna say that the bird lived for 1,400 years. And so the, the Greeks loved the phoenix for the same reasons that it represented new life, rebirth, resurrection. And if you've led any, read any fantasy literature in the last 20 years, you've seen that we're still fascinated with the phoenix. There's something in the human heart that longs for renewal and restoration and resurrection. What we celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus over, the, over death from the grave, what we celebrate in Jesus' triumph over the grave, it is that resurrection story, it is that renewal story that satisfies what our hearts long for. And the incredible good news of what Jesus did in coming and living and dying and being buried and rising again is, is that it's a reality that's available to all of us. It's not just a myth of a legendary bird carried on through ancient traditions. It's the real love of a God who made you, who forms you, who fashions you, who wants a life for you that's made possible because Jesus triumphed over death. He carried our sin with him to the grave and he rose victoriously. Uh, we're in this interesting place in that we look back on the resurrection just short of 2,000 years ago. We should be living in the reality of this joy and hope all the time and yet each year we have this rhythm built in where we reflect on it intentionally and we have to be reminded that this is not something new that happens all the time. I tell you, you this at Christmas, is that Jesus isn't born anew every year. Jesus was born once, and that reality is incredible. Jesus died and rose again once, and that reality should shape our lives. It's not a complicated story. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Now, that's not to say that it's not a story that's sometimes difficult for people to believe. It's not to say that it's not a story that's somewhat unusual. It's not to say it's not a story that doesn't have some mystery to it. It's not to say that it's not a story that's, that's wonder-inducing, because it is, but it's not a complicated story. I, I love how Matthew succinctly summarizes uh, these events in Jesus' life. Uh, in Matthew chapter 27, the, the verses should be on the screen here in a moment. But I just wanted you to see that Jesus came and he lived. We see that in the bulk of Matthew's gospel. He died, chapter 27, verse 50 says, and then Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Jesus was buried, Matthew 27, verse 59. Jesus, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the, to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. There are witnesses to Jesus having died, being buried. The next few verses we won't read speak about how the religious leaders wanted a guard to be set outside the tomb. They wanted the tomb to be sealed so the disciples couldn't mess with Jesus' body. And then in chapter 28, we see how Jesus rose. 
After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's a simple story. Jesus lived. He died. He was buried, and he rose again. And yet here we sit, or in my case, stand on Resurrection Sunday, and we see that the implications are profound from such a simple story. That the Son of God would come and live and die for our sin and then triumph over death, offering us the opportunity to live eternally. And eternal life doesn't begin when we die, by the way. It begins when we come to faith in Jesus. There's a fullness. There's a new life that's available to us. Each of us can live our own resurrection story. We can find new life and new purpose and new perspective in our world because of Jesus' triumph over the grave. And so much of the joy and the hope that we celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus is because he satisfies that longing for more that we have. And all of us can experience that. Everyone in this room can experience that. But a question remains... Will we? Will we experience that? Will we believe in what Jesus has done? Will we stand and, and, and build our life upon the promise of an empty tomb and what that means for us and what that means for the world? I just want to spend a few moments here uh, at the end of our worship experience um, looking at what that new life looks like, that new life that's found in Jesus. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 through 21, although we'll primarily emphasize 14 through 17. As you find that, I just want to pray and ask God to teach us about this new life and invite us into that new life through his word this morning. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can gather here and reflect on the significance, God, of your amazing resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that even if that story is familiar to us, that it will not um, become common, that it won't become uh, something easy to miss, that, Father, we will see that there's power in the triumph of your son over the grave. God, would you teach us what it means to live as people who believe in the power of the resurrection, who ourselves have been brought out of darkness and into light? God, will you use your words to draw those here who have yet to experience you and don't know of the hope that you bring and the life that's found in you to draw them into your life? And God, maybe for those who are here and 
they failed to appreciate the significance of how your resurrection should change every moment of our lives. Would you help them to see it with a new clarity today and bring a renewed sense of joy and life to them? God, would you teach us through the words of Paul? Would you, through your spirit, guide the words that come from my mouth that they would draw people to you? And it's in your name we pray, amen. So Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul himself uh, knew his own resurrection story. If you're familiar with Paul, Paul at one point in his life went by the name Saul. Saul describes himself, Paul describes himself in those Saul days as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, Saul's early journeys recounted in the early part of Acts in that he persecuted the church. He made his mission to disrupt the work of the new followers of Jesus. He would travel from town to town, arresting them, imprisoning them. He was a man filled with anger and bitterness and hostility towards followers of the way, as it was called in his day. And yet one day, Paul, like Mary Magdalene, like John, like Peter, like James, like the blind man, like Lazarus, like the leper, he ran into the resurrected Jesus. He ran into Jesus and Jesus changed everything for him. He was on the road to Damascus and this blinding light hit him and Jesus called him to a new life. And Paul's life was completely changed that day. And so when he writes to the Corinthians, he writes of a man who's experiencing, along with his colleagues, this new life. And you can see him grasping to bring understanding to these Corinthian believers. If you study the ancient city of Corinth, it was a city that has been equated almost to like a modern day Las Vegas. Like it would be called kind of the sin city of the, 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 the Greco-Roman empire. And so here he is writing to people who live there and he's helping them see there's new life. There's something better found in Jesus. And here are the words I wanna focus on, verses 14 to 21. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, being Christ, died for all, that those who live, that people who live should no longer live for themselves, but they should live for him, for Jesus, who died for them and was raised again. He said, because of this, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. He says, all this is from God, from God who reconciled us, God who changed the relationship, God who transformed the relationship with us. He reconciles to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, he gave us the work of, of helping other people experience this transformation and this change. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation, this message of change and transformation, a changed relationship with God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be transformed, be changed, be reunited with God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Paul likes long sentences, and Paul likes big words, 
And sometimes in the midst of those, it's hard to focus on what he's saying here. So I want to give you the summary. He's talking about this new life that is available in Jesus. And he describes that life. In, in verse 14, he says, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels him, shapes him, directs him in that new life. That word compel here is sometimes translated controls or constrains. It's this picture of this forward movement, but it's a directed forward movement. It's, it's, you're being bound in by something as you move with purpose towards a goal. And Paul says it's Christ's love. It's what Jesus did for us. He says it's Christ's love that compels us because he died for all, because Jesus gave up his life. He sacrificed. He paid the penalty for our sins to help us have the opportunity to be made right with God. It's that love that, that directs me and shapes me and, and holds me in on this course in life. It's, it's what, what Jesus has done that, 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 that compels me, that, that helps me live this new way. Maybe, maybe an easier way to, to picture this is if you think of an elite athlete, whatever sport, whether it's something they do on their own or they do with a team, uh, an elite athlete who's trying to excel at the high school, collegiate, or professional level, their goals as an athlete will compel them. They will constrain them. Their goals and what they hope to achieve will will control. They'll control their diet. It will control how they spend their money. It will constrain how they spend their time, the type of trainers that they invest in, the type of equipment that they buy, how much sleep that they get. Their goals as an elite athlete shape them and, and, and help them live this new life towards these goals as an athlete. So what Paul is using that picture that, that when when he is in Christ now, the, the love of Jesus compels him. It shapes him. There's this new life that's shaped by what Jesus has done. Not just his sacrifice on the cross, but his triumph over the grave. There's a new life for him that's shaped and directed by what Jesus has done. He, he mentions new life again in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come the old has gone, the new is here. And he has an exclamation point next to that. When we are in Christ, it's a phrase that Paul uses multiple places to refer to someone who has personally chosen to believe, to have faith in who God is and what he's done through Jesus. And they've aligned their lives with him. They've turned from living their own way. They've repented. They've confessed him as Lord. They've entered into his life, most likely through baptism. There's a whole passage in Romans chapter six that speaks about being baptized into Christ, like this, this act of faith that, that, that we, we climb into and view our life through the lens of what God has done in Jesus. He says, people that do that, the, they're a new creation. There, there's a whole new life that they're living. No longer the old life, but there's the new life. When you think about those experiences in life, that are kind of our ashes moments, or our ashes experiences. Those dreams that have been destroyed, those relationships that lie in ruins, those, those experiences that haven't come to pass, or the expectations that are unmet. So often our ashes are charred reminders of what once was. They are because of our own sin, our own wrongdoing, the sin or the wrongdoing of someone else or the global effects of sin and wrongdoing on our world. That's the old. The old life is where 
sin has the final say. And again, if you're older than six or seven years old, you can probably look at times in your own life or your own choices that would go against what God intends. And you may not have the vocabulary to say that what you were doing or are doing is sin, but those ways that we live opposed to God's best and God's intent, those of us, again, who are older than six or seven years old can look at places where we have lived in those ways and they have brought about pain. They've brought about hurt and they've brought about disappointment. They've damaged relationships that meant a lot to us and maybe even damaged them to the point that they're no longer a part of our lives. Our sinful choices have wrecked our minds in some cases because we've consumed or listened to or watched or viewed things that are just full of things that rob us of life. They affect how we think and how we view the people around us. Maybe it's the words that we say, the other choices that we make. Those are kind of our ashes. They, they, they render the things that we value in life to ruins. And if it's not our own sinful desires, our own sinful choices, sometimes it's the choices of other people that are sinful that have brought about those ruins and those ashes in our life. Again, probably everyone in this room can share an experience of sinful choices that someone else made that hurt you and wounded you and affected you in a profound way. And if it's not those, then it might just be the global effects of sin in our world. When sin entered the world, this temporary world before Jesus returns and makes all things new, it's full of some of the side effects of sin, disasters, disease, all forms of decay and even death. And, and those often are part of our ashes moments. But here's the joy, is that Paul says the old has gone and the new is here. The old, the old that's, where sin has the final say is no more when we trust in the Jesus who triumphed over grave, who, who, who took our sin on the cross and buried it in the grave and rose victoriously. What we celebrate on Easter, what we celebrate on this resurrection Sunday, there is new life. A life that's not consumed by the ash, that new life can rise from the ashes. And what does that new life look like? That new life has a new purpose. He speaks to purpose in these verses. Verse 15, and he died for all. Jesus died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Jesus, who died for them, was raised again. Because Jesus died and was raised again, he did that so we would live not for ourselves, but for him. And so that new life is about living for him. It's about placing over our lives this question that says, okay, God, how do I live for you? What do you want from me? That's the new purpose we have. And that new purpose guides us into better relationships and it guides us into uh, better experiences in the workplace and better experiences in life. It doesn't make everything perfect, but it guides us. It's this new purpose for us. We say, God, what do you want from my relationships? What, what do you want in my relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend? What do you want in my relationship with my spouse? What do you want in my relationship with my kids or my parents? What do you want in my relationship with my grandchildren or my grandparents? What do you want in my relationship with my coworkers? What do you want in my relationship with my neighbors? What do you want in my relationship with my, my, my community? God, what do you want in my relationship with people around me? We ask that question not to live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Jesus, what do you want? You're the one that, was die, that died and raised again. What do you want from my life? It's this new purpose, a new question to ask. God, what do you want for my career? I would guess that in this room, there are many people who have come to a place in their career at some point where they were like, 
I just feel like I'm punching the clock. I just feel like I'm putting in my time. But the new life in Jesus gives us a new question. God, what, what do you want? God, God, how do I live for you in this job? Even if I, I don't think it's a, a great job, God, how do I honor you today? How, how do I impact someone's life for you today? And it can bring new purpose, even if you're fed up with your job. If you can ask that question, God, you've placed me here for this season. How can I honor you? How can I live for you? How do I live for you when it comes to my finances? How do I live for you when it comes to how I spend my time? How do I live for you when it comes to how I expend my energy? See, this new life comes with a new purpose that as we ask this question, God, how do I live for you, the one who died and was raised again? It, it kind of ignites this new life in us and we can rise from those ashes. It also brings new perspective. Look at verse 16. Because they're compelled by the love of Jesus, because they live in this new life, here's what Paul writes. So from now on, because of these things, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. How do we regard someone from a worldly point of view? How do we look at someone from a worldly perspective? We, we measure them by the things that our culture prioritizes or values and not what the word of God or God would value. And how do we do that in our culture today? We measure people by their success. We measure people by their appearance. We, we measure people by their abilities. We measure people sometimes by the color of their skin. We measure people sometimes by their ethnicity, by their nationality, by their social class. And when we look at people that way and we judge them or measure them from a worldly point of view, we miss out on the very best of who people are and, and how God has made them and how God values them. Paul says, we used to do this to Jesus. And again, using Paul's story back when he was Saul, he saw Jesus as a rogue rabbi. He saw Jesus as an obstacle to the life that he and other Pharisees were hoping that the Jewish people would, would live and the, the life that they would strive for. So Jesus was this rogue rabbi who stood in the way. Jesus didn't look like the Messiah that they anticipated. Remember the prophets tell us that there was nothing in his appearance that people would be drawn to him. He didn't look like a charismatic leader. He didn't fit their definitions of what a successful Jewish rabbi would be. And so Paul was opposed to him. And yet when he was made new and he came into the new life with Jesus, living for the new purpose, he began to see Jesus differently in the same way we can see other people differently. You and I can look out at the world and look at the people around us and we can see them from not a worldly point of view, but from a point of view that honors the God who made us, the living word. You know what it means to look at people from a godly point of view is that we see that every man, woman, and child in this world, those that live in your home, those that go to your school, those that are on your teams, those that are in your workplace, those that are sitting in this room, uh, those that are on the news that we watch from around the world, are all people who are created in the image of God who are valued by God, who God wants to bring into the same life that he's inviting you into and he's inviting me into. The new way to look at them is to see there's no one, no matter the, the egregious deeds, no matter the, the hurtful things that they've done that is so far gone that the love of God cannot rescue them if they were to turn to him in faith. See, this, this new life has this new purpose. God, what do you want? This new perspective that, that every person I interact with is a person who God loves and values and should have the opportunity to hear about him and come to find the life that he offers. That's why at the end of this passage, Paul says that 
We're his ambassadors. We're ambassadors of this reconciling love of God. We want to help other people come to see and experience the transformation. We want to see their lives rise up from the ashes. See, the hope of Easter, the hope of the resurrection is that death doesn't have the final say, sin doesn't have the final say, that there's new life available. We can all rise from the ashes. They don't have the final say. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus actually reads from it when he's at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And it talks about how there will be beauty from ashes. How he'll take the ashes and he'll bring a crown of beauty. And I was thinking about what what parts of life are ashes beautiful? And so I was Googling, which is always the right thing to do, right? When you have a question, because Google is so smart. Sometimes, not really. Um, I found that there are people that actually have made an art form out of using ash as one of the main things uh, that they use to uh, create their art. Um, I was looking for perhaps someone who paints with ash or sculpts with ash, and I found those eventually. But you know what came up first? There's a whole growing industry right now called cremation art. There are people who, when they lose their loved one or they have a beloved animal that that dies, they will enlist some of those ashes to an artist and they will take acrylic and they will take resin and they will create something beautiful so that loved one can, the, the person who gave the ashes away can then have on their mantle or on their wall something beautiful that came from the ashes. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure if that industry is gonna keep on going to me. It sounds just a little odd, but if, if it works, great. If it helps people have hope, great. But I was most intrigued by as I started kind of going down that rabbit hole of art from ashes is that I found these artists around the world who use ash to make beautiful paintings. There's a woman in California uh, that takes ash from the wildfires and she paints canvases with the ash and then she sells them to benefit families who've been devastated by wildfires. And what a beautiful story of something coming from ashes. I found the story of a, a Philippine painter who he, he goes to these regions in Indonesia that um, have that, that part of the world that have uh, volcanoes that are erupting. And he'll get ash from those volcanoes and he'll use it to paint. And he'll sell these memorial paintings of the volcanoes made from ash to benefit people. And then I came across what probably was my favorite, a Chinese artist named Zhang Huan. And here's a painting he made of Chinese farmers in a field, all painted with ash. And I thought there's just something beautiful about that, that this old ash, and for him it was ash from incense, could be used and repurposed and made into something beautiful that's on display around the world. And if you search for Zhang Huan, you'll find that he is a, an artist. I think his website's the allure of matter. He paints with all different types of matter. But seeing this reminds me that beauty, that new life can come from the ashes. And I hope that it does something in you that helps you remember that because Jesus triumphed over the grave, that your ashes, whether physical or maybe more metaphorical, Uh, They're not the final end for you, that new life can come from the ashes. Will you rise from the ashes? Will you find the hope that is found in Jesus? Will you follow him in faith? 
where you see that what appears to be the end is in many ways just the beginning that God can create new in you. And if you're a person who's surrendered to Jesus already, will you, will you really live as someone who's risen from the ashes? Will you allow his new purpose to guide you each day? I mean, let's be honest for a moment. There are people all over the world right now that are showing up in churches to worship on Easter Sunday. And some of them, and maybe it's even your story, haven't set foot and tried to worship God since last Easter. But if the reality of the resurrection is real, shouldn't it compel us, like it compelled Paul to to have our lives shaped for him? Shouldn't his purpose govern not just one day a year, but every day of the year that we live not for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again? If you're a person who identifies as a follower of Jesus, then live for that new purpose. Live as a person with that new perspective on the people around you. Don't see people from a worldly point of view, but see them as every individual you encounter, someone made and formed in the image of God who needs the hope that Jesus alone provides. Together, let's rise from the ashes and help other people do the same. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the incredible story of your triumph over the grave. And God, I pray that you would help that not be just something small that we look on once a year, a few times a year, but God, that it can be this this power that that is in us and coming through us. I think about verses that speak about the, uh, the, the power of the resurrection that can live in us through the power of your spirit. God, may we be people who, who rise from the ashes, who are drawn to your life and make a difference in this world as people who have been changed and brought into new life. Would you guide us in this, Father? And may you carry us in this as we celebrate your resurrection. Amen. Amen.